Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. We haven't met. My name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here. It's great to be with you guys. Um, Man, it was so good this morning just to be reminded that God is great. Amen? And as we worship together, um, I was at the Orpheum last night. Uh, My wife and I, we had some family in town. We went to see Amos Lee. And I'll be honest, Amos Lee was good, but Jesus is so much better. And uh, I, I had... This morning was such a better concert than last night was. And one thing that I really love about uh, when we make Jesus the center of our lives, when we show up here on Sunday mornings, we're not impressed by those that we see on stage. And we don't have to be impressive. But if you know the stories that are taking place in individuals and in families' lives throughout this congregation, you can see as they worship, and I just sat in the back and watched some of the stories that are unfolding in our lives, and I see how impressive Jesus truly is. And it's amazing to be able to worship him and see his spirit at work in our lives. And it's one of the great encouragements I have from being here on a Sunday to worship with you guys and see Jesus at work in all of our hearts. Today we're, we're getting close to the end of Ephesians and we've been in Ephesians chapter 6 in a series on spiritual warfare for the last several weeks. And we've been looking at what Paul would call the armor of God. And today, we look at verse 17. Last week, Brad Strom led us to the helmet of salvation. And then Paul goes on and he says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, a brief reminder. The armor of God that Paul has, the metaphor that he's using is the armor of God. But he is saying this armor of God is the gospel, And the gospel is, the armor represents different aspects of the gospel or different pieces of the gospel that we have as Satan comes against us. And we've also said that Satan comes against us primarily not so much as we would think of fangs in the flesh, not so much always in a physical way, but 
more than likely accusations or lies in the heart. And so what we mean by that is that the primary place that Satan is going to attack us is in the everyday rhythms of our life, in our relationships with our spouse, with our kids, with our boss and our coworkers. Those, that's the place that Satan um, is going to try to lodge his lies and accusations against us within our heart. And so Paul reminds us that each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we have the gospel. We have this armor that we can take up and that we can stand firm against Satan's schemes against us. The lies and accusations that he would try to level against us. And we do that uh, through the power of Jesus. And that's one thing that I want to point out this morning as we look at the armor of God. One thing I want to remind us of, the key here is that all of this is the power we have through Jesus. But in our day and time, it's really easy to misunderstand that. In a day and age where a Seth Curry would have walk out on the court and write, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We can very easily misunderstand when Steph has his own shoe line and he writes Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things Does that mean win an NBA championship? Does that mean Steph is powerful? And we can be very, if we're not careful, we'll come to believe that the gospel makes us powerful. And I just want to remind us that the gospel doesn't make us powerful. It's Jesus' power that's at work. It's Jesus that wakes us up in the morning, that enables us. It's his spirit that is at work. And so as we think about the gospel and as we think about standing firm, we stand firm in the power of Jesus. And it's his power that gives us strength. Therefore, we should be not prideful, but humble because of the power that he gives us. So today we're going to examine the sword of the spirit, which... um, Paul says, is the word of God. And this would have been a short dagger that a Roman soldier would carry. So we've looked and kind of gone back each week and looked at what the illustration would have pointed to. And the Roman soldiers would have carried a small dagger. It's usually about a foot long, foot and a half, two feet at the very most. And uh, that might be hard for some of us to relate to. You know, we don't carry swords around. But we all know and have been cut by sharp weapons at some point in time in our life. Um, my kids and I love to watch this show on the History Channel called Forged in Fire. And on this show, there is, uh, well, the picture's already up, but um, that's Doug Markaida. He's one of the judges on this show. So they'll bring four blacksmiths into a shop and give them about four hours, and they'll give them like a lawnmower. And they'll say, make a blade from this lawnmower. It has to be complete with a handle. And then they'll test it. And one of the best things about the show is when Doug Markaida steps up, and he is a martial artist arts expert and a weapons expert and he will usually depending on what size the knife or sword is he will cut anything from like a fish to a wild boar like in half like I mean it's dramatic and um yeah there's probably some warnings before the show it's a little graphic and then Doug Markaida with this toothy grin will turn and if it's sharp he will look and he will say 
it will cut. And we, like, we love that line on the show. Um, but we've all been cut personally by something. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a boy, you can probably remember, uh, I want a knife, I want a knife, I want a knife. And there was that one particular Christmas or birthday where you got a knife. And I, I can remember my first, I got a Leatherman. And I remember my dad said, it's sharp. And it was this multi-tool, it had pliers. He said, it's really sharp. And I kind of heard that. And a few minutes later, I was like, what's this red stuff bubbling up? Like, where, where'd this come from? You know, it took me like five minutes to cut myself. Um, or maybe you're like my wife. Um, we had a mandolin incident a couple years back. We were, you know, cucumbers. I'm like, who put the piece of chicken on the cucumber plate? Oh, that's your finger. Okay. My kids love to tell that story. Then she passed out promptly after that. Um, we've all been cut. Right? We've all been cut by something. We've all had some type of bad experience with a sharp object. And the point is this. We've all been cut at some point and we know what that's like. And Paul is saying that the word, don't miss this, the word of God will cut. Don't walk out of here, remember, don't walk out of here. Check. My wife still has all 10 digits. Don't go looking like, just got nothing. That's not the point. The point is the word of God Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer of Hebrews is saying that this book actually understands us. That we think we read the Bible but the Bible is actually reading us. The Bible is able to penetrate our conscience. And when the Spirit of God illumines the Word of God and shows us ourselves and then shows us our Savior, Jesus, we are cut. And our natural response as followers of Jesus should be that we move toward repentance, that we move toward confession. And, and our hope as Followers of Jesus at Mercy Hill, here's our hope, is that our hope is that daily we would see Jesus more clearly. Not kind of like, well, you know, I hope that by the time I'm 80, I, I know him a little more. No, our hope is that daily we would see Jesus more clearly and that as we see him, we would be changed by him. And that we would move toward confession and repentance. And that we would look more like Jesus. And as we see him more and look more like him, that we would share Jesus with others daily. That's our goal. Um, now, we become more like Jesus. We see him most clearly when we hear his voice. And I think that the best way to hear his voice is through his word. And that happens primarily when we see Jesus through reading the scriptures. Um, I think, uh, however, that when we look at the scriptures, I think we tend to think of studying our Bibles kind of like eating our vegetables. You know, really good for you. And I know I should do it. Kind of tough to swallow. Like broccoli, 
or Brussels sprouts or asparagus. Or you say, I like all those. Well, then boiled squash. Like there's something out there that you just, I know it's good for me, but it's just a little tough to swallow at times. And that's oftentimes what it's like when we open God's word. It takes tremendous effort and discipline and resilience to study God's word. And I found that to be in this word daily is much like any other discipline in our lives, whether that's the discipline to try to exercise or to eat healthy or to spend our money wisely, or to get a decent amount of sleep. All of those things require a tremendous amount of effort and discipline and resilience. And some of you are thinking, that's exactly why I don't read the Word of God, because I don't get enough sleep, and I don't use my money wisely, and I don't eat very healthy, and I don't exercise at all. So that makes a lot of sense now. Um, But if you hear all that and you think, but I should read the Word of God, well, be careful in how you go about that. Because we can be, we can double down on our discipline when it comes to exercise or eating or some of those other areas. But if we double down on our discipline when it comes to reading the scriptures, the worst thing that could happen is that we would actually be successful. I read the Bible seven times a day. It's no big deal. I don't know why you can't read the Bible. I spend an hour a day in the Bible. I journal, I read, I memorize. I don't know what your problem is. Now that's not my life. But for someone who is, that's who Jesus primarily railed against. He would call them, you whitewashed tombs, you Pharisees. You know the word of God, but it's made you more arrogant and more prideful. And so if we want to be disciplined in studying the word of God, we don't go to God's word saying, I'm going to double down on my discipline. No, we go with a humility before God in which we say, Jesus, I want to see you more clearly today. Um, that's why I love our, our CBR journals. If you don't have a CBR journal, they're 10 bucks. We've got them for sale. It's a reading plan with some suggested journaling. If you don't have the 10 bucks, just tell Stacy I don't have the 10 bucks and we'll take care of it. But in that CBR journal, it begins with a question, what do I need to surrender to Jesus today? What a great place to begin with humility of heart to say, I wanna be more devoted to Jesus. I wanna have a passion for Jesus. I wanna see him clearly And so as we come to his word, we have to keep in mind, we can't see Jesus in this word. Not on our own. I mean, the Bible has this ability. Hebrews 4 says it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. What does he mean by that? It cuts toward life and it cuts toward death. What do you mean? Well, we sang that hymn earlier. Um, Oh, Lord, our God. You know, awesome wonder. We see all of your handiwork displayed. What is that hymn writer writing about? He's writing about the evidence of God's grace that's given to everyone in this world. Not saving grace, but evidence of God's grace that everyone would see that there is a creator, that there is something bigger and better than us. You don't have to convince an atheist that there is a God. An atheist has to convince themselves that there is not a God. Creation cries out that there is a God. But as we look at God's word, if the spirit doesn't illumine our hearts to see Jesus more clearly, it cuts both ways. It cuts toward life, but it also cuts toward death. Because if our hearts aren't illumined 
if our hearts aren't warm to see Jesus, because the problem is we can't even see our sin. We open up the Bible and without the Spirit of God to illumine the Word of God, we can't even see our sin rightly. Like I said, we'll become more prideful. And so we need the Spirit. And so we go to God in humility saying, God, would you meet me? Could I see Jesus more clearly? Now, today, I want to take us to a passage of Scripture for just a few minutes. It's in Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there. When we think about the way the Spirit of God illumines the Word of God to us, there's no better model to look at and no better place to go in order to understand how the Word of God speaks to our hearts and how we stand firm in the Word of God than to look at how Jesus stood firm as He was tempted how this word, this sword of the Spirit, helps us to stand against Satan's schemes. And the big idea is this. The word of God is like a prescription to the believer, offering both direction and healing. The word of God is like a prescription to the believer. It offers both direction and healing. So what do I mean by that? Well, if I were to give you a bottle of amoxicillin for your small child, and say, this amoxicillin is what is needed for your child to be well. And you have this bottle, and I gave you no directions. You have in your hand what is needed for healing. But without directions, if you don't know any better, you're just going to try to, you got to take the whole bottle. I don't really know how that turns out, but I, I can't imagine it being good. And so we need God's word for both. It's healing, but we need it for direction as well. So we need the spirit of God to illumine the word of God to us. And we see that happen in Matthew 4 so clearly. And here's one of the things that's scary, guys. As we read through, you're gonna see how well Satan knows the word of God. He knows it so well, he's gonna actually consistently quote it to Jesus in order to tempt him. And so be very careful and think, well, I know God's word. I don't need the Spirit of God's help. Look at Matthew chapter 4 in verse 1. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. If you look in verse one, it's interesting that the spirit of God actually sent Jesus out and to the desert in order that he would be tempted. Now notice, Jesus was tempted but was without sin. So temptation in our lives does not mean sin. It's really important for believers to hear that and understand. Just because we're tempted doesn't mean that we sin. But it it wasn't the Spirit of God that tempted Jesus. 
it was the devil who tempted him. And Jesus is out in the wilderness. And um, we look at verses three and verse four, and we see the first temptation is that Jesus would turn stones to bread. Um, Maybe the most obvious statement in all the Bible 40 days of fasting, about as long as the body can go without some type of permanent damage. Maybe the most obvious statement in all the Bible, Jesus was hungry. As my kids would say, well, duh. And Jesus is tempted by Satan there. And one of the things that that we we see here is that Jesus teaches that our hunger should make us humble. Our hunger should make us humble. Satan is tempting Jesus to see his human appetite is more important or of greater value than his spiritual appetite. I mean, think back to the story of the children of Israel. If stones could provide water for the children of Israel in the desert, I mean, why can't they satisfy Jesus' hunger? What could be the harm? And in this case, as we see Jesus go out and he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it's it's obvious that his life is corresponding to the 40 years in the wilderness that the children of Israel spent as they were tested. And we see that Jesus actually endures his test victoriously, obediently, And he does it because he knew the word of God and he trusted in the word of God. He actually responds to Satan from Deuteronomy chapter eight. And he's emphasizing that God provided manna to teach the Israelites and to show them that they were unable to provide for themselves. And instead that they had to rely on him, not only for their spiritual provision, but for their physical provision. You remember the story of the children of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness? They're hungry. They go into Moses and they begin to complain and they say, did you bring us out here only to die? And God provides manna. They would wake up in the morning and it would have fallen and be on the ground and it was small like these small seeds that they would collect and they would um, take it almost like wheat or grain and they would make um, bread out of it. And manna simply means what is it? It was a question. And the Israelites woke up saying, what is it? And they saw year, day after day, and month after month, and year after year, that God would provide. What was God trying to accomplish? What was he trying to teach? He was trying to teach the Israelites that I am your spiritual sustenance. I provide for you spiritually. And I'm gonna show that to you by providing for you daily, physically. And Satan tempts Jesus in order that he would, that Jesus would be tempted to say, no, my physical needs are more important than my spiritual needs. Our hunger, physical hunger, should make us humble as we're reminded that we can't meet our own needs. Our body can't make food. We have to take in food on a regular basis, hopefully at least three times a day, right? And as we As we eat, we're reminded that we aren't powerful. We can't sustain ourselves. That we need Jesus because man doesn't live by bread alone. The temptation here for us is that we would believe that our physical appetites will truly satisfy. 
And it's a good opportunity for us to look at our lives and just like we took time to confess earlier during the music portion of our worship that we would examine our lives and that we would ask, where in my life am I looking for satisfaction from what is created, from what is physical? And where am I looking for what truly satisfies in Jesus? I had a friend, a good friend, who um, I planted a church with in Nashville, and I knew him since seminary uh, here. And he grew up in Bogota, Colombia, and um, really came to know the Lord in college. And his dad was a great church planter there in Bogota. And as he came to know the Lord and became passionate about following Jesus in his college days and in seminary, he and his dad made this agreement. He was really passionate about Jesus. And they agreed, neither one of us are gonna eat breakfast until we've spent time in the word with Jesus daily. And it was just something that God put on their hearts, but it was a way that they were, they were daily reminded that, my, that God provides and my spiritual sustenance is more important than my physical sustenance. And it was, it was also pretty good accountability. If you wanted breakfast, <laughs> you'd get up and get in the word pretty quick. But um, yeah, my buddy Mike did that. I thought it was interesting. The second thing that we see, the second temptation comes in verses five through seven. And Satan says, hey, hurl yourself, hurl yourself off the temple mount. So it's probably not at the pinnacle of the temple, even though it says pinnacle, but it means high point. So Jesus would probably be looking down into Kidron Valley in front of him. And, and Satan actually quotes scripture to Jesus here. Satan's temptation is that Jesus would use his supernatural power to rebel against God, even while seeming to demonstrate great faith. Now this gets tricky. This is where Satan gets many of us to attempt great things for God that God has never asked us to do. Notice that Satan is actually quoting scripture as he tempts Jesus He's quoting from Psalm 91. But the Son of God understood that God's promise from Psalm 91 was directed to those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, not those who attempt to create their own shelter by taking over God's authority. It would be like if we said, um, I can go jump in my car and I can find a road and I can go 140 miles per hour down the road and I will be okay because God is gonna shelter me. He promises that in Psalm 91. No, he doesn't. He doesn't promise to shelter you when you're out from underneath his authority, when you're acting like a fool. And in this statement, in this moment, as Jesus is tempted, we are reminded Jesus teaches us that when it comes to the kingdom of God, that hurry rarely helps. Hurry rarely helps. How often do we do this when we're in a hurry? Attempting to do great things for God that he's never called us to do? And here's the, this is a unique danger for Christians and for the church. When we do things in our own power, not only are we destined to fail spiritually, but we're actually in active rebellion against God, all the while claiming to be doing his work. Do you understand what I mean? God, I'm going to do these great things for you. God, I am going to fill in the blank. 
And if God has not called us to do them, then we're actually out from underneath God's authority. We're actually in rebellion against him claiming to be doing his will. And so we have to be careful that we are consistently hearing the voice of God and and walking as the Spirit directs us. Because we live in a society that, this is what makes it so confusing in the church. I think many Americans are actually drawn to rebellion. Because we live in a society that values doing large things famously as fast as we can. But that is not the kingdom of God. One thing that social media has revealed to me, and I saw another friend this morning. I see friend after friend, young people, who are a part of movements of God. And I mean legitimate movements of God in which the Spirit is using individuals and, and churches to impact the world by the thousands and tens of thousands. And I saw another young leader this morning that I had spent time with. And this last year, he tells in his Facebook post how he attempted suicide twice. And in a long paragraph, there is absolutely no mention of Jesus or of God. And I was so grateful for an older man. I looked through, the, there were like 75 comments. And I thought, is no one this church going to remind him of the truth of the gospel and I found one of the elders at a church in Tacoma and Don just gently reminded him hey I don't want to preach you a sermon but I want to remind you of the spirit he just spoke the gospel to this young man and I saw this old man in the faith who was plodding along if you looked at him you'd say Don he's not much value he's not a great preacher maybe he's good for prayer if that does anything Don, faithfully plodding alone. We have to be careful. Jesus teaches that hurry rarely helps. Jesus would use agricultural analogies all the time in the Bible. He would say that things grow slowly. You can't oftentimes see them. You can't watch it happen. He would say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, he would say it starts really small. And we say, no, but we want big. He says it begins really small. I think oftentimes in our lives we're tempted to rush God's timing. We grow impatient. How often do we, how often have you been guilty that you stop praying for someone because God hasn't changed their life on your timetable? How often do you give up on your own sanctification? Because God hasn't changed your own heart on your timetable or on my timetable. But God is at work. Rarely as quickly as we would hope. Uh, I have one friend that says that he's growing us as fast as he can without killing us. And I think we don't realize that oftentimes. The third thing we see, and I want to move along quickly here, is that the third temptation is um, Satan says, hey, I'll give you all the kingdom of the world if you'll just worship me. Now, here's what's unique. Jesus would have all the kingdom of the world, but he would have to do it God's way, not Satan's way, which was a way of sacrifice. And we are tempted to go for shortcuts. Jesus teaches there is no shortcut to success in the kingdom of God. And he demonstrated this to us when, we, when he followed in obedience to the Father's will and the Father's command. Notice in all of this, Jesus never shares his portfolio. He never pulls out his birth certificate and says, do you not know who I am? Have you not read the book of, you can quote from Psalms, Satan, have you read the book of Isaiah? Clearly it points to me. Do you not know? Jesus never pulls rank. 
He never claims to be the son of God. Satan is always tempting him. If you're truly the son of God, Satan tempts him to take the shortcut to earthly success instead of laying his life down as a sacrifice for many. And the temptation that we face is how often are we tempted to believe our worth is found in the things we own, in what we acquire, our titles, our positions, our influence, our acclaim here on earth. All the while, Jesus models for us a holy passion, a devotion to the Father, to the Father's plan, to the Father's words, to the Father's ways, which is always the way of sacrifice. Jesus models that for us. As we think about, okay, so we got the word of God, the sword of the spirit. We see how Jesus modeled it in fighting against temptation. Well, how do we do that? What, what, what does that look like for us in terms of application? I think it's important that we get to the heart of, of what the sword of the spirit is. Because most people say, I think we're there, Brad. Like you can, you can end the sermon. It says it, it, we already read, it is the word of God. Okay, fair enough. But the problem with that is, for most of us, that means it is the word of God. And I've got six copies at home, and I've got an app on my phone where it will actually read to me at any time of the day. I have access to it constantly and continually, which means that most of us take it for granted. Kind of like water. You ever travel to a foreign country to a third world country that doesn't have access to clean drinking water. And you'll say things like, I'm never gonna let the water run while I brush my teeth. When I get back, I'm never gonna take it for granted. It's so precious. Need it for life. Need clean water. It'll make me sick if I drink this other. But then we take it for granted. The psalmist didn't take it for granted. He would say things in Psalm 119 like, it's a, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. He would say it's sweeter than honey, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And we think about all the truths of the word of God. When I say that the word of God is a prescription for us, like literally it is a prescription for us. Like we would, we would be served well if we went to the word of God sometimes before we went to the doctor. I'm being honest, before we even go to the psychologist or the psychiatrist, and I'm not against either one of those, been to, been to all of the above. But then we would go to the word of God because the word of God talks to us about how we spend our money and it talks to us about our heart. It talks to us about our anxieties and it talks to us about our fear. It talks to us about all of our struggles. I know when I was sending my, my oldest son, he's 18 now, we sent him off to military camp this last summer. For an entire month, he was gonna be gone from, out from underneath our roof and, and it was legitimately for teenagers like boot camp. And, and I was excited and a little fearful for him. And, and I would spend, I spent time making a bookmark for him because he could read, he could bring one book with him, one nonfiction book he could bring along with him. And so he could bring a Bible. And I made a bookmark. And what do you think I put on that bookmark? I was concerned for him. I was anxious. I might've been a little worried. And on that bookmark, I wrote things like, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. There are so many scriptures throughout God's word that bring healing 
to our hearts. They are a prescription for us. I remember when we moved back to Memphis to start this church, it was the third church plant that we'd been a part of, and we were, we were tired. And we had nothing. We didn't hardly have any support. We barely had a partner church. There was no one outside the five members of our family that were a part of it. And we held on to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do you know how good that is? When you don't have anything else to fall back on? The Lord himself goes before you? God, you've got some plans that I don't have to figure out, that I can just walk in. You're gonna be with me in the midst of that. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be discouraged. You're not gonna forsake me. The word of God is a prescription to us. And listen, I just, wanna, I just kinda wanna end with this. First Peter 1.25 says, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You know what that means to me? It means to me that I ought to pay more attention to the word of God than I pay to social media and what everybody thinks about everything. Because I can't figure out if eggs are good for you or not. They tell you they are and then they tell you they're not and now they are again. And I don't know if you eat the white or the yellow. They're always changing everything. But the word of the, uh, the, word of the Lord, the Bible says it stands forever which means there's probably some things in this book that if I spent more time looking at this book than I spent looking at a screen with some people who are gonna be dust in a few years from now, I have to think, I'd probably find more wisdom, more truth, more prescription, more healing. I'd look more like Jesus and he would receive more glory. And I would find more joy. I hope your heart's encouraged. Mark Ashton would say, it's the word of God that does the work of God through the spirit of God in the people of God. Begins with the word of God. Oh, that we might give ourselves daily to the word of God. We would plead with God that he would set our hearts ablaze with a desire for worship, for seeing him and being changed. John Newton, I'll close with this. Many of you know John Newton. He was penetrated, captured by the word of God. He was raised in a Christian home in the mid-1700s. He left home and joined the British Navy where he entered deeply into the ways of sin. And eventually, he deserted to live in Africa, a place where his lust could have the most opportunity for satisfaction. In the years that followed, he became a slave trader, Abused by those who gained power over him, he was kept in chains. Physically wrecked, he escaped toward the sea and found his way aboard a British merchant vessel. Due to his knowledge of navigation, he became a ship's mate. However, when the captain showed trust in him, he broke into the ship's supply of rum. He became drunk, so drunk that when the captain returned and struck him on the head, he fell overboard. If one of the crew had not rescued him, he would have drowned. And as the ship was nearing Scotland on the way home, it ran into a storm and was blown off course. For days the storm blew and water came into the floundering vessel. Newton spent countless hours down in the hold working the pumps in desperate fear for his life. There his mind turned to Bible verses his mother had taught him before she died when he was only six years of age. The word of God came alive within him, convicted his thoughts and attitudes and brought him to repentance. 
and he cast himself on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. The ship ultimately did make it safely to port and Newton entered into the study of theology, became a notable Puritan minister. We know him best for his hymns, especially the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see because of the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Surely it endures forever. Let me invite our musicians, if they would, to come forward. They're gonna lead us in one final song. Those who are serving communion will come forward. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and and to worship. This is a time in which we're reminded of the intimacy that we have with God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And as you break a piece of the bread, be reminded of Jesus' body broken for you. Your sin's forgiven. As you dip it in the juice and eat it, be reminded of his blood poured out for your sins and that we have intimacy with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful. God, we pray that you would forgive us that oftentimes we treat it like we treat relationships. We get really excited about them. Like in our marriage, we love it. We're in the dating process, but as time goes by, we fail to do the work in order to continue to be devoted to you, to show affection to you, to ask you to humble us, that we would see you more clearly, that we would resemble you, that we would show you to others. God, thank you that your word is powerful. God, would you make us a people that hunger and thirst for your righteousness, that we would hunger and thirst for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for the intimacy that we have with him. Thank you that even now that through your spirit, you're drawing us to know Jesus more. Not to know a book more, not to have more knowledge, but to know Jesus more, to see him more clearly, to find joy in him. And God, that you would receive great glory as a result. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.